Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we have uh, John Nichols, who is a longtime journalist, um, writer for The Nation, and a co-author of the book It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism with a little... You might have heard of the co-author. You might have heard of the co-author. A little-known senator named Bernie Sanders. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll get into it in the uh, uh, discussion, but it's a, a pretty peculiar partnership, I would say, when it comes to politician uh, books. You know, usually these are maximally cynical uh, products, you know, it's like you, you hire some hack fraud, you know, some guy who churns out, you know, ebooks using chat GPT or whatever to talk about <laughs> how you're a patriot and you love Florida or Alabama or whatever. And, you know, that, that, that your, uh, inoffensive family is, is totally commensurate with American history. And this is why you should be president or senator or whatever. <laughs> but here we have an actual collaboration, which, which you can, you can tell by reading it, you know, is an act, a work of actual, you know, people sitting down to write stuff that they actually think. And that that is almost unique in, in political books. And not just people, but a, a remarkably, uh, as we all know, courageous and principled senator who is kind of the, you know, the T.O. Bernie, the, the face yeah. of kind of the, you know, democratic socialism and the, the kind of uprise on the left in recent years. And, uh, you know, he's collaborating creatively and fruitfully with a, a longtime, um, journalist and intellectual, uh, of the left and of the right and, and of uh, politics generally. So it's, it's a, a good read. Um, I think it, it won't surprise people that, that know Bernie well, but it will, uh, you know, concretize and flesh out certain things in certain ways. It'll, it has certain policy, uh, specifics and, uh, draws upon things that maybe people didn't necessarily associate, uh, with Bernie's way of thinking about the problems today and the, and the future. Um, but, uh, but the conversation is a good one too, because we kind of dig into, um, just exactly how Bernie is thinking about things now and, um, and how that differs maybe from other people on the left. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, but before we get into the interview, you know, we, we get a little theoretical, um, in, in, in terms of, you know, socialism versus capitalism and, and that sort of thing. But reading this book, um, it really brought back to me the fact that in 2016, uh, uh, Bernie was quite close to winning the nomination. And in 2020, he almost did win it. Uh, there was there was a period of like two to three weeks there where it seemed like he really was going to get the favorite. It, it took That's an right. unprecedented a, a conspiracy, a backroom conspiracy led by Barack Obama to prevent right. him from winning the nomination in 2020. Um, and you know, that's infuriating on one level, but on another level, it tells you it's promising. It's yeah. Promising. It, it tells you the, the, the promise. Yeah. The, how, how close we were to not having fucking Joe Biden be the president, uh, and, and the, and the, the potential uh, appeal of Bernie's politics, you know, if, if packaged correctly by, you know, pro he's quite old now, but, but, you know, somebody like yeah, AOC yeah. or, 
or Gretchen Whitmer or whoever. Um, and yeah, so, you know, and in, in an era where things seem to be going sideways in many levels, it, it, it reminds you of that. Like there, there's an appetite for good stuff. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have to be satisfied with milk toast bullshit forever. Um, we can do better, but that's right. Bef- it's a good reminder in the, in the face of all the nonsense going on now. Yeah. Before we get to that quick reminder that this podcast is sponsored by the America prospect magazine. So if you subscribe at the $10 a month tier, uh, you'll get a free digital subscription to the magazine as well as our bonus episodes at $5. You'll get our bonus episodes of which there are many hundreds now. Um, uh, otherwise, you can rate, review, send to your friends, relatives, or, uh, you know, ex-girlfriends uh, to piss them off. But uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, let's, let's stop f- fooling around to get to our interview with John Nichols right now. Uh, John Nichols, um, thanks for coming on the show. You, you're involved in this book. Uh, it's okay to be angry about capitalism. And I thank you for giving me that posi- uh, permission. Um, you know, I, I'd hitherto been a little bit, you know, wishy-washy about it, a little bit anxious and self-conscious about being angry about capitalism. But now that I've read this book, I feel confident. Sure. Um, so, yeah, first, just give us a little bit of background about this book. It's it's kind of a peculiar um text in terms of like uh, a politician books because as as i'm reading this like it reads very much like bernie sanders wrote it like i hear his voice like coming from most of the pages and most politicians they what you know i I mean i i hesitate to sort of make this assumption without having direct confirmation of it but they don't write anything um that you know you 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 pay a ghostwriter to write some absolute claptrap pablum about how america good freedom good oh look at my anodyne family um and yet here we have like a quite inflammatory book um in which you're sort of i guess a co-writer uh, you know, in, involved in it. So, so what's the story in, in the collaboration process there? Well, I'm not a co-writer. Uh, or I'm not, I should say I'm not a uh, ghostwriter. Right. No, no, you're embodied, fully embodied. Your, your person is, is out there <laughs> and real. And I, when the Senator and I talked about the book, I, I said that from the start that, um, you know, if he wanted a ghostwriter, he could, he could find somebody else. Um, but if he wanted somebody who kind of knew where he was coming from, had a good sense of it, having covered him for the better part of 30 years, um, and also who had some ideas about some of the issues that he'd been involved in and maybe some of the issues that he needed to get involved in, like the future of work and things like that, um, then we could do something and probably something great. And he was from the start, very into that idea. Uh, I want to really emphasize Bernie Sanders wrote, you know, huge portions of this book. He, he walked chapters in, I walked some things in, then we'd go back and forth and really wrestle with it. Um, and, uh, change things a lot. We, uh, had, I don't really had disagreements per se, because I think ideologically we're in a pretty similar place, but we certainly had perspectives on, you know, what you kind of dial up and what you dial down. 
Um, it was actually, I've co-written books with other people like Bob McChesney, the great media theorist. And I have to tell you, uh, this was a very creative, very um, engaging process where we really did uh, try to push the limit on some ideas. And and I think you see that especially in um, uh, the chapters, I, I would say the chapters on education and on Again, future of work and a few other issues. And frankly, the closing chapter on kind of how to think about the Democratic Party. So I, I'm very happy with where the book turned out and, and kind of amazed. I, I, I understand, you know, look, Bernie Sanders is a very big deal, very prominent figure in America, uh, without a doubt. But, you know, we were shocked when this started out at number two on the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for like seven, eight weeks, um, which, again, is rare for a political book. Nice. Su I'm success probably, in the marketplace. Yeah. <laughs> the proof of value. <laughs> well, it's a, weird, it, it's a weird thing because if you're saying it's okay to be angry about capitalism, some people might say, well, you know, maybe, maybe the marketplace is not a good measure. But one of the things that, that we argue in the book a lot is that our problem with capitalism, it's a multifold problem with capitalism, lots of, lots of concerns about it on many, many levels. But the core problem is that it's out of control. It's uber capitalism. It's not, this isn't the mom and pop store. This isn't, you know, like competing uh, record shops on Main Street. This is, you know, what we have today, multinational corporations monopolizing not just our economics, but our politics. And, and so we, as we argue, it's very okay to be angry about that. And uh, even if you may accept a little bit of the market. I want to I want to dig into that, but one one more quick question first. How does Bernie write stuff? Do, does he as I assume have like a giant like 1920s typewriter? <laughs> <laughs> or, no. You are your assumptions many of the assumptions people make about Bernie Sanders are wrong. Um first off, he is a very congenial and very funny guy. And that I can believe. He really is. And that's something when he's when he's speaking, when he is in a hearing in the center or something like that, very, very serious. He takes the job seriously. Uh, but in a writing setting, he's he's actually quite easygoing and quite, uh, you know, creative. He's, he's with the process. Uh, and his his, you know, tool of choice is an iPad. Huh. Look at that. Look at that. And he works a lot on an iPad. I think he works on a regular computer as well. But but he carries an iPad with him like all the time in his uh, briefcase. And uh, he reads books on it. He reads articles. He, he uses it a lot. Now, when you said that, that you would walk things over to each other, does this mean you were living together? I picture you guys staying up all night in bunk beds and like having a good time. No, not quite so. <laughs> uh, not quite so uh, um, old school. Uh, I went up to Vermont, uh, to Burlington. And stayed in a hotel um, and the senator would come and pick me up uh, in his in the morning. He has a car, which I think is 13 years old and, you know, <laughs> pretty much taped together. Uh, he, there's no limousine there. Uh, he drove, he'd drive over, pick me up. We'd go over to his place, either to his office or his house. And we would often start at like 10 in the morning and write until 10, 11 at night. It was a it was very serious. You know, we had we in most cases, we had written a draft or something. We had stuff that we had already kind of put there. But when we got to the point of really, you know, pulling the chapters together, um, we would go 
you know, sometimes six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours. Um, it was a, a very, it was serious work effort. Um, but both of us are also big walkers. And so we, we would, we would go, we'd write yeah. for a while and then we'd go out and take a long walk and talk about the ideas and, and kind of bang them around and then come back sometimes with a more creative take on something. Yeah. Walking's great for creativity. You know, it's just I hope fantastic. So. Yeah. 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 And th- if it isn't, then I'm dooming myself because I walk <laughs> a lot every day. <laughs> Well, that's good for your health anyway as well. So I, I want to dig in um, to – you mentioned the uber capitalism. You also in the book talk about – and when I say you, I'm going to refer to you, Bernie, or both of you, whomever might have written whatever. So that's just uh, how I'll use that. Well, but, I mean at, uh, at a certain point, I do emphasize, you know, Bernie Sanders' picture is on the cover. Right. Right? Yeah. And so there's nothing in this book that – that Doesn't reflect him. That yeah. doesn't reflect him, that he doesn't approve of. Um, I was excited to be part of this creative process, but you know, when you say you, um, you're really talking about you know what we did together. But it's ultimately it's it's a it's a book that reflects where Bernie Sanders is coming from. Absolutely. So the the Uber and unfettered capitalism part I found very interesting and, and want to talk about. And you know, preface this with the fact that as you probably know, we are huge fans of Bernie, big Bernie stands. Uh, you know, I, I think I can speak for both of us, our, our favorite uh, nominee for president in our lifetimes, uh, probably our favorite politician. Um, but I'm curious, there are times when, um, for example, indicting capitalism and the systemic nature of the injustices is absolutely spot on as a diagnosis. Um, but then, you know, when we talk about the greed at the root of these problems, uh, it seems to me that's the kind of language that, while accurate in many ways, can confuse people about the actual systemic nature of things. And, and there is, you know, of course, subheadings about it. it's not just Jeff Bezos in particular, or it's not Elon Musk in particular. Like, definitely, obviously, Bernie in, in understands this. Um, but I think also similarly, uh, even though neoliberalism and, you know, whatever your favorite term is, late stage capitalism, is uh, much worse in many ways and has taken on different um, forms and, and the, the problems are magnified. Um, it, I wonder if it isn't kind of a, a problem to suggest that like there's this uh, adorable capitalism um, that's hiding underneath uh, and, and that really it's just uh, – well, here's the thing. Is, is capitalism good and it just needs to function properly or are the problems – systemic to the nature of capitalism. And that's the way to explain what's going on. Right? Well, I think that's a, a very good question. I think that there are systemic problems with capitalism and that and, uh, there are systemic problems with bigness in a lot of ways. Um, these are separate, right? Capitalism has uh, a, a core systemic problem that it errs toward bigness. If you get some wealth, right? You try to get more. You try to monopolize. You try to get bigger. Uh, suddenly, you stop being the corner store and you start being, you know, you try to be Walmart, right? And so it's it's that intersection where things go really bad. Um, is it possible? Or is it reasonable to say that um, you know the main street in a small town in 1920 in rural Wisconsin, where my great grandfather was ran the the cheese uh, warehouse, right. Um, where people were all pretty equal economically. And, um, and if you ripped somebody off or tried to elbow somebody out, the town itself would, would err against it. Now, do you call that capitalism? 
some, I suppose Steve Forbes would like to call that capitalism, right? Because then it makes it, it feel good. It's like it's like uh, community banking, right? Or something like that. Um, but I think one of the things that we wanted to emphasize is that we're, we're not coming, at least in this book, to tell people they got to get rid of Main Street, right? They got to get rid of that, you know, the ice cream shop or the the record store on Main Street. That's that, you know, that is fine. And that that is good. Um, and it can be very creative. Uh, by the same token, what we are saying is that that uber capitalism, which, again, it's it's an extension of that systemic reality. Capitalism errors toward bigness. Um, if you don't have a level of regulation that controls against that, um, you're going to wipe out that Main Street. You're going to wipe out um, anything that might be, as you suggest, that cute, you know, underpinning there that that people might like. Uh, and so I think what we're really arguing is that you can be angry about capitalism in and of itself, right? Because it has these systemic challenges and these systemic tendencies, right? But the thing that we are really trying to emphasize, and I think, I hope it comes through in the book, is that how capitalism has evolved in the United States, how it exists today, not just in the U.S., but in most countries, is something that is incredibly destructive and incredibly damaging to humanity. It errs against um, human growth, the improvement of people's lives, uh, survival of the planet, survival of, of people. And so I think what we wanted to do was uh, to let folks wrestle if they want to in their own heads with that question of Main Street, right? You know, come come to where they want to be. But that try to get an agreement that that uber capitalism, unfettered capitalism is too dangerous to be allowed, too dangerous to accept. And, and one final thing here, you know, uh, I think Ryan was joking up front about, you know, getting permission to be angry about capitalism, right? And I know that you guys don't need that. And I will go a step further. I will suggest that most of the people listening to this podcast probably don't need permission to be angry about capitalism. But a lot of Americans do. A lot of Americans have been told that um, that problems are solved if we leave it to the market, right? And that these big mega corporations, multinational corporations, uh, monopolies, that they are good because they deliver you lower prices or something like that. And we have an immense, in our society, we have an immense amount of propagandizing on behalf of capitalism on a daily basis coming not just from, you know, conservative Republicans, but from Democrats and from, you know, folks on television who you would think of as relatively liberal. And so what we want to do is sort of cut through that and say, at the very least, you've got a right to be angry about it. And if I can add one final thing, that it's important to be angry about it because in our society, too often we are told that if something's not going right, we should be angry with our neighbor or with the person down the street or with the person who's immigrated to this country or the refugee or the person who doesn't look like us uh, or who doesn't you know, have the same background or whatever. We're told you know, that's where your anger should be directed. Uh, we get that a lot in our society. And what we're saying is until you've wrestled with capitalism, all those other issues are secondary. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah I, d I definitely appreciate that. Uh, 
perspective of trying to like establish a common ground, so to speak of, you know, so like we can at least agree that the, the current system is uh, not working. Um, but it, it, it does kind of strike me as an interesting contrast with the 2020 uh, campaign where, where you had, you know, Elizabeth Warren basically making a sort of antitrust uh, arguments. She is saying, you know, I'm a capitalist, but like, it's not working like it should work. We need regulations. We need to bust up the monopolies. Um, and like, then, you know, we can return to how things sh- should go. And, and, and Bernie, as I, you know, Bernie was agreed with all that stuff, but then he was also like, we need to set up worker ownership funds where, uh, you know, I mean, this is like a classically socialist type of of uh, position where, you know, like the workers should should control at least to some degree the means of production, the wealth of the companies where they're working at, that they, that they should control their workplaces. Um, and, you know, uh, a substantial so, section on worker ownership. Yes. But but so can you speak to this this uh, the the. This distinction, you know, be, between because, you know, Bernie, he, he mentions he's a democratic socialist, but doesn't talk too much about like like socialism per se. It's like you read this book, it's OK to be angry about capitalism and like sort of natural next question would be, so should I be a socialist or not? But, you know, like where do you uh, sort of land in in this in this question of uh you know, regulation, antitrust markets versus, um, you know, worker ownership or sovereign wealth fund, that sort of thing. There's a it's a great question. There's a substantial uh, chunk of the book, especially where we're talking about the future of work and how work is organized, yeah. um, where we we, in fact, do talk about worker ownership uh, and, and could indeed more. I mean, obviously, this is a book that tried to deal with a, a group of of issues and and probably you could go deeper into any of them but at, at the core of your question ryan is this this you know debate about regulation versus uh ownership right of control and and it's one of the oldest debates in american politics right it's uh we quote debs a lot in the book uh eugene victor debs yeah. is probably the along with maybe franklin roosevelt is a touchstone and there you have it right you've got debs uh, you know, who was a clearly committed and clearly defined socialist talking about, you know, ownership of the means of production. And you have Roosevelt, who was was clearly a regulator, um, although actually established some some pretty substantial government run things like, I don't know, Social Security, um, the TVA. Yeah, exactly. And 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 so uh, I think that that you get into what is this sort of uniquely American response on these issues, which is a blend of, of the two. There are some things that are um, so big, so ubiquitous that uh, if they are, if they're owned by the private sector, there's an awfully good chance that they're going to be, um, you know, corrupted, right? They're going to become a vehicle by which to, you know, steer the resources to wealthy individuals. And I think we see that constantly in the debate about Social Security, right? For a, my entire lifetime, right, there's been a debate about Republicans want to privatize Social Security. Well, I mean, it, that's a shorthand for a reality, which is that that there's people who want to sort of have this thing that that's kind of 
the government's there, it takes the money in, right? It, it organizes the money, but then it moves a lot of the, the resources out for to investment bankers and other people like that. That's a terrible idea, right? That's That's not the way to do it. And so there are clearly things that should be run could should be run in the public interest um, for the people, right? Uh, there are other some other things that maybe would be regulated. And uh, where those lines are, folks are going to debate it, and I'm totally open to that debate. I, I respect that debate. But I can tell you uh, as a good example, you know we're we're coming into a, a big debate about uh, artificial intelligence. And we reference that a little bit in the book. Um, and it's very interesting that one of the heads of the biggest artificial intelligence companies came before Congress the other day and said, yeah, regulate us. You know, we'd love to be regulated. Well, I, you know, the, the backstory on that is they'd love to be regulated because they still want to have it. They want to control it. They want to, you know, make the, the money off it. They just, they're willing to have it, you know, be, you know, a little bit tinkered with on the margins, tinkered with on the edges. Uh, I can tell you that the the biggest one of the biggest mistakes the United States has made uh, made it with the internet. Now it, it's very likely it's it's made it with automation. Now it's very likely to make it with AI. Is to say, well, let's see what the market does, right? And you end up in this situation where these these big new innovations, uh, which are very creative and have lots of possibilities, they end up uh, airing constantly on the side of profit, right? On the side of, you know, well, we're going to do the thing that will make us a lot of money, not necessarily the thing that is the most creative. And um, talk about that in technology, but the equivalent, of course, is in the area of healthcare, right? Where you do research on, you know, what you're going to cure and somehow male pattern baldness always gets plenty of funding, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, more power to that. Just uh, take a look at the U.S. Congress, I suppose, and see. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, right? You know, and it's sort of like, you know, there's one of the things about people being in control of things, right? Having popular control of stuff is that my argument is, by and large, the, the great majority of people uh, given real control over things, popular control, uh, will say, now, you know what? Definitely care about male pattern baldness, but on balance, going to kind of lean a little bit more toward curing cancer. And um, and I know you don't necessarily have to choose, but if you're going to be choosing, that's where you'd go. And I think it's similar with the rise of many of these technologies. We are seeing technologies come online. We've seen them come online where so many of the decisions were made, um, you know, literally in the interest of hyper profit, right? Making the biggest biggest amounts of money possible, not in the interest of saying, how can we make these technologies benefit society, right? How do we how do we do that which is best for society? And my argument is that when you're dealing with something so big, so ubiquitous, uh, there are places where popular control is is far preferable to um, quote unquote leaving it to the market. Absolutely, and I think John, I you know, I'm going to speak for Ryan again. I I think. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, if you don't speak for I, Ryan, I'll try not to speak for the Senate. <laughs> no, no, I, I think the, the policies in the book, especially given how much is covered, are, are, are great. And I think you just explained some of the challenges about how to figure out when to propose what. And, and then there's also, of course, the political possibility question about what, what you can get done. Um, I think, I don't know if Ryan was focused on this more, but at least I'm focused more on the kind of the pitch because – Bernie has been so successful uh, at firing people up. Uh, like you say, like anger is important at injustice and at capitalism and the sources of injustice. And more than um, tapping into that righteous anger, Bernie's been great at translating um, for people, not just the origins, uh, but what the vision for the future needs to be instead. And so this this framing question, because like, Look, we're so far from social democracy, forget about socialism, that like, I'm happy to push in that direction, regardless of what we call it, uh, or, or, you know, which side, if you want to be camp social democracy, camp regulator. However, I do think that part of translating anger, um, properly is in identifying, um, the cause, not just the complexities, uh, of different stages of capitalism, but like, <sighs> the ethos of socialism, if not the, political economic system, because, you know, capitalism and socialism are both social systems too. Like the, the ethos that says uh, you have a right to all these things, um, education, healthcare, no one should starve, all these principles, right? Whether where you fall into, on the technocratic policy debates, like there's a reason that socialists will always be in favor of uh, not means testing and, and making sure that it's Medicare for, for all, right? And and so you see like the centrist Democrats or the neoliberals, these debates that you point out, like when, when Bernie and Biden had their kind of representatives come together to try to uh, come up with some agreements and you note like where they disagreed. Well, where they disagreed, you don't have to get into economic theory. You can just get into like a socialist ethos or a kind of liberal ethos, which says some things it's actually okay if, if people suffer from as long as the market said so, right? So, so like when we're trying to bring together all kinds of people who, who like you say, might have different experiences and might like their small business or, or have different memories of history, um, I get the idea that you don't want to rock the boat too much with those associations by, by using words like socialist. But Bernie's actually famous for being one of the first politicians to embrace that label as well. So, so what's your thinking about the framing more than just like the policy differences here? So let me just maybe quibble a little bit on one of the first politicians sure. to embrace the label. I'm sorry. I, I, contemporary, contemporary, contemporary politicians. Yeah, no, of course. There's I, a great I, I tradition. I brought it back. Um, a great tradition of it. Yeah, absolutely. Boy, Harvey J.K. would really uh, whip my butt for saying that. So well, yeah, thank you for thanks. I wrote a book, I guess now a dozen years ago, The S Word, which was a, a look at socialism in America. And one of the arguments I made, it's a history, of, it's, it's a, a short history of socialism in the United States. And the argument I made in that book is that we have a distinct, as a country, we have a very distinct approach to socialism. It is very different um, than many of the European models and uh, certainly many, very different than some of the Southern Asian models. And, uh, and there's a reason for that. This country, very, very big country, the frontier always pushing westward. Um, all these, all these different theories. And also, you know, our, our incredible wrestling as a country with racism and, uh, xenophobia and a host of other issues. Um, all of these things come into the mix, right? And, uh, in America, socialism has been pretty well defined for more than a century, right? 
And uh, certainly there's people that are going to have all sorts of different variations of different takes on it. But at the heart of it, it is this view that you have these rights, right? The, the right to healthcare, the right to education, uh, the right to meaningful and fair pay for your work to form a union, um, the right to be free uh, as a human being from, uh, you know, the, the, the burden and the horrors of racism, xenophobia, and a host of other, um, you know, sexism, all these things. And these have all been part for a long time of the socialist vision in the United States, going back, you know, going back, I think you can say to Debs um, and to others, even before them. And uh, what I would tell you, though, is that when you get to the issue of, of ownership, right, you know, how much, who owns what exactly, that's where the wrestling comes in, right? And it's interesting that uh, one of your, uh, you, it's, you're talking about the rights, right? Right to healthcare, right to education, et cetera. Um, you know, we reference Franklin Roosevelt a lot in the book because Franklin Roosevelt in 1944, uh, as Harvey K would remind you, um, got up there and said, we get, you know, we've, we've, been playing around for a long time with some success on political rights, extending the franchise, things of that nature. But we have to recognize that there are also economic rights. And uh, what Roosevelt referred to as economic democracy, right? And this this concept of economic democracy. Um, where that intersects with socialism, it depends on who you're talking to. If you talk to, you talk to Debs, Debs might say, yeah, pretty much, but that he would he would err much more on the side of, of you know, a much stronger ownership. Um, Roosevelt, maybe not so much. Uh, you know, I assume that uh, Ted Cruz would tell you that that all of it's socialism, right? That it's, it, you know, that if you're if you're doing window treatments to keep the cold out and the government's helping you on it, that's socialism, right? Um, what I will tell you is that in this in this American journey, having written a lot about the about people who identified as socialists um, throughout history. One of the things that that they have done, one of the things that's been done, which I think is good, is to say, you're not gonna spend a lot of time trying to define it. Right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna tell you exactly what it is, but we're gonna comfortably use the word socialist. And we're gonna say that that refers to a humane and just society where we address economic and social and racial divisions with an eye toward uh, a more equal and a more fair distribution of our wealth and, and, and of our opportunities as a society. And, um, you know, it's a touchstone for me. And a lot of people, people, you can, we could spend the whole show talking about this, but the Milwaukee socialists uh, of the uh, period from 1910 to 1960 were the most electorally successful socialists in the country. They elected three mayors of a major city at, at some of that period, one of the 20 largest cities in the US. Um, they were very, very successful in managing that city, building it out. Uh, they operated on, you know, very often very radical uh, premises. And yet at the same time, you know, Milwaukee had its small businesses, Milwaukee even had its big businesses, right? And um, and and somehow. They got through that, maybe not perfectly, maybe with a lot of flaws. And, I'm, and again, this is where the debate can be had in a very healthy, very reasonable way. Um, but 
I will give you a, an example of, you know, one of the great uh, time, probably Time Magazine, my favorite cover of all time was with Dan Hone, the mayor of Milwaukee. And, um, and they, for America's, I believe it was America's Marxist mayor. And uh, Dan Hone had a bust of Marx, right? And a bust of Abraham Lincoln, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And it's important to, to understand that, that when we talk about all these issues, as a country, as a unique country, the United States, we wrestle with this, right? And the one thing that I think is important, and I, I go back to this all the time, and I have a lot of arguments with reasonable people on it. Um, I think using the word socialist is important. I think you have to say socialist, right? Um, and be comfortable with identifying that word. And Bernie Sanders has done that throughout his career. He has identified as a democratic socialist. And I think that that is a big deal. That is a really important thing because look at what's yeah. happening now in our society, right? In our politics, uh, centrist Democrats, center-right Democrats, corporate Democrats are referred to as socialists by their opponents, right? And they struggle with how to refer to it. They struggle with how to deal with it. They say, oh no, I'm not a socialist, you know, and they're, they're, oh, I despise it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And A, that does them no good politically, right? Because it, it's denying it somehow that, that, that just reinforces for the critics, right? The people that are attacking you, even if in fact it's true uh, that they aren't socialists. But it also kind of warps the discourse. And one of the things that, that I always say is I give the libertarians credit, right? They call themselves libertarians. They're very comfortable with it, even libertarian-leaning Republicans. And they have gotten a lot of their ideas into the discourse about a host of issues. And, and I think it's important for people who identify as socialists to be comfortable saying the word and saying, yeah, I've got this kind of socialist idea, social security. Um, I've got, the, you know, and, and not, not to be afraid of the term. And, and I guess that once we get past that line, right, then as in every country around the world, then you're going to have a great fight over how to define the term, right? Yeah. You are. And they have it in England. They have it in France. They have every, in India, every place around the world, there's a struggle to define the term. Um, in America, I think the first challenge is just to get past the question of whether you're going to use the word. Right. Don't you also need to use it not consistently conceptually all the time, but like, for example, and I, I know, I think Dr. King said this, uh, perhaps originally, if I have that right, but like, uh, that what we have now is socialism for the rich. I obviously, obviously I get the point of that, but I also, I also think it's quite confusing <laughs> because the, the, the connotation in that phrase is that socialism bad or something, or, or that, or that like our system now reflects something socialist. Uh, what, what do you think about that kind of? Rhetoric? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it is something that, that respect to Dr. King and, and, and lots of other people have said it and, you know, sort of like, um, you know, socialism for the rich and sort of like, you know, really hard scrabble, you know, r the roughest form of capitalism for everybody else. And, um, and, and I think a, another way to say it, perhaps a strong way to say it is, uh, to say that, that for the very, very wealthy and very powerful in this country, we take away risk. Right. We we have um, we've we've created a circumstance where they have a great deal of security. 
you know, they, they have an yeah. immense amount of money. Yeah. They're sure they're going to continue to have that money. If they invest that money horribly and irresponsibly, yeah. if they create yeah. junk bonds, right? And stuff like that. Or if they do Silicon Valley bank, you know, stupidity, <laughs> we'll be right there to bail them out, right? You know, and they're lionized. They're lionized as the risk takers somehow. Right? But they, they take a risk. They, they always land very, very comfortably. Right. Uh, much more comfortably than Jeff Bezos when he brings his rocket ship back down the state to, to the <laughs> ground. Um, and on the other hand, we do not we do not protect uh, the great mass of people from the risks of day to day life. Right. You get sick. Um, you have a you know a bad break as regards your work situation. You, um, you know, you're come up in a situation where you're very, very smart, but you don't have the opportunities to get the education that that you should or could. And and as a society, this is where we fail. Right. We um, we take the risk out of being rich and we put it all into being poor and working class in America. And again, what I think we argue in the book is that that we should reverse that order. Right. Yeah. You know, maybe you have rich people. That's cool. Although we do argue in the book that we should get rid of billion, you know, draw the line at the billionaire level. Um, but uh, but at the very least, that if rich people are doing stuff, they ought to, it ought to be a risk, right, for them. Um, but for the working mom who gets up before dawn, who takes a bus across town to clean some office, right? You know, yeah, I want to remove a lot of her, the risks in her life. If she gets sick, I want to make sure that she's got access to healthcare without having to pay for anything on it. If her kids have, you know, dreams and, and goals, I want to make sure they've got the access to the education, not access, access is the wrong word. I want to make sure they have the education that can go as far as they want to go. And um, if that working mom is cleaning an office, right, I want to make sure that if she wants to form a union, she could form that union and that that union can negotiate um, without, you know, barriers with, it, with frankly, erring on the side of the union, for lack of a better term. Um, when we sort through those things, when we sort through those issues, then we can begin to have a much deeper and a much, I think, a much richer debate in this country about where we want to go next, right? What, what the next steps as a society might be. But we as a society, we're wrestling with the issues that we were wrestling with in 1920. We have not you know, we still say to a person who gets sick, you may go bankrupt. We still say to a, a really smart, striving kid, um, sorry, you can't afford that education. We, we're getting better on it in some ways, but even if they do it, then they're going to end up with massive debt. And we still say to the vast majority of people that want to organize a union in this country, um, you know, good luck, because you, certainly your government is not not there for you. Yeah, well, and th I think this tends to demonstrate the social aspect of socialism, I think, is super important. And this is this is why I would argue that, like, the Soviet Union was not socialist, because that's dictatorship in which, like, a tiny, you know, clique or even just a single person made all the decisions. And it was not actually like the the power was not distributed across the whole population. Um it wasn't democratic, which is yeah, also exactly. supposed to be synonymous, it's, right? And, and you know, I knew I, I knew Frank Zeidler quite well, 
And it's, it's thrown a name into this conversation that I've, not everybody will be familiar with. But Frank Zeidler was the last of the great socialist mayors of Milwaukee. Uh, he was the mayor from 1948 to 1960. Um, and then he lived another 40 years after that as a, you know, working. He's very working class. There's a great story of Frank Zeidler. When he finished being mayor, uh, they had a little, you know, reception for the end of his mayoralty in 1960. And a woman, you know, from South Side of Milwaukee came and uh, came to the reception because she liked Frank Zeidler and the reception had finished and she got out. She was a rainy, cold April day and she got to the bus stop and sat down to wait for the bus and she looked to her side and there was Frank Zeidler with his box of stuff from his desk. <laughs> and she said, Mr. Mayor, what are you doing here? And and he looked there and he said, socialists ride the bus. And, <laughs> um, and, the, the bottom line on all this, the, the, the thing that, that matters in all this is Frank told me, and this would be in the 1990s, you know, long after he was mayor, he said, I don't totally get this term democratic socialist because I think socialism is democratic. You know, it is it it's by its nature. It is. That's the that's the concept. And if you turn it into something else, right, if you, you know, create a dictatorship, if you create oppression, right, then you're, you're not, you're not getting it. You're not, you're not doing it in the right way. Unfortunately, in America, because of the something else from my home state of Wisconsin, Joe McCarthy and the Red Scare, not just the, the, that was the second Red Scare, the first Red Scare of the late 19 teens. In this country, there's been such a battering of the term socialist that it, it becomes, uh, convenient, I guess, to use the term democratic socialist to put that that word in front, right? And so um I and I I think that that we do that, um, but we should understand that that the the important thing is to to use the word, to be comfortable with the word. And the funny thing is, we as as a political world are less comfortable with it today than we've been at many times in the past. Harry Truman was comfortable using the word socialist. I mean, Harry Truman, you know, gave a great speech in 1952, I believe, in which he said, oh, yeah, socialist, that's the term whenever the Democrats come up with a good idea, they call it, then the Republicans <laughs> call it socialist. And he said, social security, unions, education, public education, he said, all that they call socialists, right? And, and Harry Truman didn't feel it was necessary in that speech to condemn, you know, and say, oh, these are, it's all horrible. He said, that's what they do. They just, they, they call anything good. We're doing that. Um, I don't think Harry Truman was a socialist, but he's no. comfortable with the, using the term. John Kennedy was comfortable using the term. John Kennedy gave a speech uh, in the 1950s in which he spoke at length about Karl Marx, you know, and he didn't say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm down with everything that Marx was for or something like that. <laughs> but he noted, intriguingly enough, it was a speech to newspaper editors and he noted that Karl Marx had been a columnist for an American newspaper, for Horace Greeley's paper. And, um, and you know, and he joked about it and, and stuff like this. Um, what's happened in recent decades is that people have become far less comfortable. A lot of people have become far less comfortable with the term itself. And so that's why I wrote the book, The S Word, a good while back to say, you know, look, even if you're not a socialist, you should be able to use this word and understand its 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 presence. 
I think that's what Sanders has done by using the term democratic socialist. Frankly, I think the most important interview that Bernie Sanders ever did, I believe, was in 1915 or 2015. I live I live in many centuries <laughs> in 2015 um, when he uh, was I think it was George Stephanopoulos said something about, you know, yeah, but isn't it going to be a burden or is it going to be hard? You know, you're a democratic socialist. And, and the expectation was that that Sanders would say something like, oh, well, I'm not really, you know, blah, 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 and kind of back away. Instead, Sanders said, yeah, I am. And I think I mean, that's, that's that's a good thing. That's part of why especially young people love, I mean, probably everyone, uh, even those who disagree maybe with some of the policy um, particulars, uh, maybe even, you know, those crossover voters with Trump or whomever that still respect Bernie because he doesn't um, – you know, pussyfoot around. He says what he thinks, and he really seems to believe uh, what he what he says. But also, I think young people don't have the younger you are, the less likely you are to have a, a negative association or connotation with the term socialism. Maybe in part because of Bernie. I don't know. What do you think? Well, no, it was even before Sanders came along. Uh, the before the senator came along, there was a um, there was polling that started to show a real you know movement among younger folks. This is even into the, like the early two thousands where, you know, there was a very high discomfort with capitalism, like the numbers were going up and up and up and a rising comfort level with socialism. And and I think people wrestle with that because in this country, socialism is often defined by the right. You know what I mean? It's it's the right that throws the word into the mix much more often than the left or at least than the center left, the, the, the Democratic Party and stuff like that. And so. Here you've had the situation where for decades, right wingers have said that's socialist, that's socialist, that's socialist, and that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. You know they, they keep attacking things as socialist. I think a, a lot of young people came up and they said, "Hmm, free education, okay. If if you call that socialist, that's good. I understand that. Going to take that in. Uh, guarantee of health care for everybody if you get sick, okay. Going to take that in, right." Um, Right to form unions and have strong, you know, voice in the workplace. Okay, then take that in. Uh, a deep commitment to battle against racism and xenophobia, and to use, you know, the, the power of government to take on uh, these scourges in our in our lives. Um, okay, can take that in. Right, and and you know, and so at the end of the day, that which was attacked by the right, I think a, a rising generations of young people heard that and said, "All right, well then, socialism must be pretty good." Right. I, and and I, I the only reason I go that long kind of explanation of it there is that when I've been writing about it over the years, one of the things that's really powerfully struck me is that um, the right in America has. Has. Fallen into a trap of calling everything it doesn't like socialist. Right. And there's a lot of things that the right in America doesn't like that are really appealing. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe we can get to some of the impediments, not just from the right. You talk uh, or, or Bernie talks about his experience in 2020. And, and, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about Bernie's strength or uh, the uh, I don't know how we phrase it exactly, but um, whether he was more successful in, in 2016 or 2020. Um, but in 2020, right, we should talk about the part in the book where he kind of describes how he was winning the popular vote in the early states. And as as many of our listeners probably know, uh, coming up on Super Tuesday, right, uh, Klobuchar and, and Buttigieg were, were asked, as we now know, I think, by Obama, at least, 
you know, for, for Buttigieg, right. To, um, you know, to bow out before Super Tuesday and, and the centrists all coalesced behind Biden, who was, I think before South Carolina, like the worst, like performing of all of them. Maybe no, Marianne Williamson, Marian Williamson was running. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, but, sure, uh, sure. Yeah. But, but he, I think he was like, what, fifth in Nevada. Anyway, he, 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 he was not doing well. So, um, yeah, so maybe we can we can dive in, into this discussion a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I, one of the things that we describe in the book is an argument that that both in 2016 and in 2020, when Bernie Sanders started doing well, suddenly you saw a huge uh, effort by you know media and political power to say this is a very bad thing, right? And yeah. uh, the book has is many pages on. Um, the, uh, how the Washington post, for instance, I think one day ran 15 anti Bernie articles in the same day, right. Which is a pretty amazing phenomenon. Um, and, uh, and then in 2020, when Sanders actually started to do very well initially and poll in first place, right. This was, uh, you know, something that was yet some of that in later stages in 16 at a few points, but in 2020, early on, you had that. And you literally had media outlets saying, you know, like writing about how the crisis for the Democrats, Bernie Sanders is the front runner, right? This was long before um, Super Tuesday. This was in, you know, early, this is even in back in January, you know, we found articles and things that whenever he started to do well in the polls, he started to get that. Uh, and then always in those articles, it's not just the media outlets that are doing it. It's also Democratic operatives, strategists, campaign folks who are saying, uh, often quite prominent ones. Oh, this is a terrible thing. And then you say to him, well, yeah, actually, here's a poll that shows that Senator Sanders beats Donald Trump by a bigger margin than some of these other candidates that you're all excited about. And they say, well, that 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 wouldn't hold in November. And he said, well, why not? You know, why? Why? You know, what's what? Yeah, how do you know? Exactly. Um, and so. I'm not trying to, you know, de-link or, or, or undermine the arguments as regards what happened on Super Tuesday. What I am saying is this, this is systemic, right? This has deep, deep roots. And so when you got to this point coming into Super Tuesday, where Bernie Sanders had done deep organizing in Texas, deep organizing in California, where he did in fact win, uh, and deep organizing in a lot of those other states, right? You had a situation where um, certainly a lot of politically powerful people in the United States, in the Democratic Party, said, well, we got to stop this. And they had some significant success in doing that, right? They they had, I mean, I still remember the theater of that night, right, before, the, the day or so before, where everybody was flying to Texas and Beto O'Rourke was driving up because he wanted to get on stage too. And, you know, and everybody shows up and everybody's, and then they were, I knew people who on those different campaigns and they were telling me, Oh yeah, we're negotiating who gets to stand closest to Biden and stuff like this. And, and so they all, they had it and they had, you know, they had this coalescing. Now I'm not sure it's an interesting thing. I'm not sure in America that a coalescing of politicians around one, you know, guy who hadn't been doing that well necessarily would swing the thing in and of itself. But the media excitement about it, right? It was wall to wall. This was this was the biggest story in in the country by in those in that like 48 hours leading into Super Tuesday. And did it have an impact? Of course it did. Now, interestingly enough, 
if you think back a little bit historically, what story did that push aside? I don't I don't know. I don't remember. COVID-19. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It was yeah. literally hitting its mark. Right. You know, this was literally the point where COVID was was, you know, starting to really surface and and become a major, major issue. And and everybody was starting to realize this. And then suddenly we're like, oh, but we're going to have to pull the brakes for two days here and really make sure that everybody knows they shouldn't elect the guy who's in favor of national health care. Yeah, um, is very interesting, yep. very and, interesting moment politically and fitting, fitting just with that, too. I remember thinking when right before Bernie um, basically, you know, said, OK, we're, we're stopping the campaign. Uh, I remember he was like the lone wolf fighting for people to not have to go in person and to, to make it safer to vote amidst COVID, right? Whereas, you know, Pelosi and Biden, everyone were like, no, 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 no. And I don't know if that was just cynical because they thought it would help them or something. There was resistance. Look, I wrote a lot about the, you know, the coming of COVID. And I think it was, I think people were clueless. They were struggling with how to deal with it. But, and so, I mean, maybe there was, there's always, with politicians, there's always a political calculation. So I, I accept what you're saying, but I would say that there's also just a lot of cluelessness all over the place. One of the sure. things that I know was true with Senator Sanders was that he um, knew that that his campaign was about huge rallies yeah. and about a lot of contact at the doors. That's right. Yeah. Immense level of human contact. And when COVID came on and the rallies had to be canceled. And remember, this came right after you had Super Tuesday. Right. And then you're going into Michigan and a couple other states. And and they were, you know, rallies were starting to get canceled. And by the time you got to Ohio, which was not very long into that game, they were saying you just can't have super rallies anymore. And you, and going to the doors, that's going to be problematic as well. And, and so suddenly the whole thing was starting to, to pull apart. Um, as it happened, most states actually did go to some sort of you know easier mail voting and stuff like that. And Democrats, I think, ultimately realized that was fine and that was good. Um, but – for, for Sanders, I think what the real challenge was, was not necessarily how you vote, although he was in favor of making it easier to vote. I think he always has been and allowing you to vote by mail and stuff like that. But I think that the, the deeper reality in that moment was to lose the super rallies, to lose the 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 door to door, that grassroots politics, that that human connection, which was driven by tens of thousands of volunteers, people who were actually willing to go and do the work. Um, if you didn't have that, it, it was very, very hard to counter the, the, if you will, the theater of, you know, media, television, all these other things that's going on. And here's where it gets, it gets particularly telling because, um, when you, when you look at the Sanders campaign in 2016, right, where it went longer, right? It, it started early and then went, went longer, kept going into June. At several points, Sanders was written off, and then he the campaign reconstituted. It kind of came back. An unexpected big win in Michigan, an unexpected big win, quite unexpected, in Indiana. And, you know, you had these places, a uh, huge victory in Wisconsin. And a lot of people now look back on that and say, oh, well, Sanders was winning, winning, winning. No, there were, there were peaks and valleys. There were ups and downs. And the thing that allowed Sanders to kind of reconstitute, to bring the campaign back, was this grassroots mobilization, this fact 
that the, the Sanders campaign could come into a state, have rallies, even in mid-size industrial towns, and get two, three, four, five thousand people. Um, and and I think that losing that in 2020 became it just became a huge challenge. So when you combine Super Tuesday, right, the reality of what all the things, all the other candidates dropping out, right, and then you have suddenly COVID hitting and the inability to reconstitute a campaign. If you go down, lose a couple of primaries, then you can come back with with some a big concerted effort. Uh, it just yeah. directed a, a barrier. And and the sad part about it is the really sad part about it is uh, that uh, I'd be quite blunt with you. I'm certainly glad Joe Biden beat Donald Trump, uh, but I would have I guess I would have enjoyed seeing Bernie Sanders take on Donald Trump. I think Absolutely. that would have been those those would have been some debates. Yeah. Well, maybe we've, we've maybe got like a couple more minutes left. Uh if you could speak a little bit about, um, you know, you you talk in the book about the problem of billionaires and also the problem of oligarch media. And I, f- I feel like over the last few uh, months, we've seen an object demonstration of the problems inherent in, in this in the form of Elon Musk buying Twitter like one of the most important global media platforms, uh, at least it used to be, um, kind of rapidly. Yeah, still powerful, though, rapidly eroding in significance, I would say. Uh, He spent $43 billion or however much it was, a titanic sum, I think basically because he was mad at the perception that like left-wing voices had even a little bit of a platform to like get their message out to the population. And he sure enough has basically strangled that uh, way of getting, you know, uh, communicating with people. Um, so yeah. Can you speak about how, how billionaires both, um, you know, t- t- try to buy up and influence the media such that it like kind of to directly influence their profits. But also in the case of people like Musk will waste a tremendous amount of money, will lose money hugely because of like ideological, uh, uh, you know, beliefs about how necessary it is to suppress uh, even liberal or or left wing uh, viewpoints. Well, I got news for you, Ryan. It's not new. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is one of the fundamental realities of media. And, you know, Bob McChesney and I wrote uh, about six books over the years on, on media and democracy in America and, and worked with Chomsky and other folks, uh, you know, Ed Herman and lots of people, you know, Dave, Ben Bagdickian, all these brilliant thinkers uh, who've, who've, you know, wrestled with these issues for a long, long time. and. Um, one of the things is that there was always a great debate about um, media ownership and concentration of ownership of media. This is not new. This is this is something that's really been a reality since around 1920. Basically, we've seen you know a congealing and a and a an effort to you know kind of make every town a one newspaper town with not just one newspaper, but that newspaper then owning the TV station, the radio station. You know, you're trying to really you know consolidate power. 
And that historically made people rich, right? So you got that and then you became rich because you had these things. Then something happened with the rise of, of the internet, with the, the digital revolution. Um, that no longer made you rich, right? Owning a newspaper didn't make you rich anymore because the advertising, all those want ads and everything like that, had found other ways to get to you. Even owning an individual radio station or an individual TV station, while you can still get pretty wealthy owning a TV station in a good market, um, it's become different because advertising has found different ways to get to people, right? And so your phone is, you know, how they're going to reach you. And, and I, I, you know, like there's some major companies now that don't even advertise in, in traditional media because it's like, why waste our money there when we can, we can literally, you know, get right into people's brains, you know? Um, and so that change has created a circumstance where ownership of media, right, is now, um, you know, it's one of two things for, you know, like Wall Street hedge fund managers. It's you buy a lot of media and you strip the assets, right? It's got downtown real estate where the, the office used to be, or it's got, you know, there's still some loyalty to a brand and you're going to, you know, make it as crappy as possible and still like reap whatever you can get out of it. So that's, it's just horrific, right? And then there's the other way that, that wealthy folks come in. And they buy media outlets as vanity projects, right? And that, Ryan, is what you're getting to here. Yep. And and we talk about Musk. $43 billion is a lot for a vanity project, right? It's, it's, it's pretty huge. Um, <laughs> and I think that Musk would like to make money off it, like to figure out a way to monetize it. Um, he hasn't been doing a very good job of it so far. But then we should pause and remember that, you know, who owns the Washington Post? Who owns the New York Times, right? I mean, you start looking around the country, what you realize is that publications that are doing well today, you know, like that are surviving and have a decent sized staff are very often owned by a billionaire, right? This is a horrible model for the future of communications in America, right? If the only way you can get a well-staffed newsroom is if a billionaire decides that, that he or she wants to do that, um, as a society, we are uh, we are at the risk of having the range of debate being, you know, how the billionaire felt in the morning to how the billionaire felt in the afternoon. And and so we have to think about that, not just with media, but with a host of other issues uh, and, and ask ourselves whether that's an acceptable way to to organize communications in America. And I would argue and Bob and Chesley and I have argued for many, many years. It's not that there are ways. And, and we talk, Senator Sanders and I talk about this in the book. There are ways to uh, make sure that we have a, a dramatically more civic and more engaged and civil media in this country, uh, supercharging funding of public and community broadcasting uh, to the level that, that I don't know, Slovenia does it, uh, <laughs> or even to the crazy level that Canada does it. Um, you know what I mean? That's, that's a starting point and, and, and a baseline that ought to be done. But also looking at, at what countries around the world have done to make sure that you have diversity in ownership of media. And also, frankly, that the resources are there to maintain media at the grassroots level. Countries like Norway, Sweden, they have a lot of media down to the small town level. And one of the things is they make sure that the resources are there so that it can happen, that it's not just simply reliant on advertising. And as a country, 
we always have to wrestle with, you know, the question of having a situation where um, government would be providing funding and then telling you what you can do. That's unacceptable. That doesn't work. You can't have a functional media in that situation. But if you can have a situation where, for instance, the subscribers to a publication, right, can take their subscription off their taxes, right, so that we say, you know, we want to sustain uh, democratic discourse in this country. Um, that's an idea. Uh, and Dean Baker's been talking about that for a very, very long time. Senator Sanders and I in the book pull together a lot of these proposals from other countries. And, and one of the things we haven't talked about much in this conversation is this book uses what's happened in other countries, in social democracies around the world, a lot. And it says, you know, here's examples of how this is actually working in other places. And, um, and in media, that's one of the areas where we desperately need to be doing it very, very rapidly because media is dying in this country. Functional media is dying in this country. And one of the lies we tell ourselves is that the digital sphere will somehow fill the void. But there is very, very little evidence that um, digital media is going to create the size of newsrooms, especially at the local level, that will begin to cover the stories that have to be told. And so, yes, Twitter's a big deal. And I'm sorry to deviate a little off it into the broader media <laughs> issue. But the fact of the matter is, Twitter wouldn't matter as much if we had a stronger overall media system in this country, a stronger, more democratic and more civic media system in this country, especially at the local level. One of the reasons that Twitter matters a lot and one of the reasons that Fox matters a lot and one of the reasons that, that you know all these D.C.-based or New York-based media platforms and media institutions matter a lot is because we've hollowed out local journalism across the country. And until we as a society recognize the need to rebuild and strengthen local journalism from the grassroots up uh, and give people the power to do that and give them the resources to do that. If, until we do that, um, we are going to be, you know, sitting around waiting for billionaires to come help us. Right. And I will promise you sitting around waiting for billionaires to help you create a, a functional democracy is a very bad strategy. Yeah, I'd be waiting for a long time. <laughs> Forever. Well, um, yeah, we should let you go, John Nichols. Uh, before uh, you let me go, Ryan, let me just say my jealousy of you is intense because you got to go to the Faroe Islands to write about uh, <laughs> economic system. And he, he, he's going to go to Finland next. He's going to Finland before long, which you mentioned. I like that you mentioned for education. Uh, and I also like that you mentioned Norway for the media journalism stuff. It's not often mentioned for that purpose. So really great, great examples. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, still jealous of Ryan, um, but uh, but and, and thank you very much for the mention of that. And I do think, you know, you asked about, you know, how we deal with questions of social democracy and socialism and stuff like that. One of the ways in the book we deal with it is by taking examples from social democracies around the world and saying, here's how it can work. Yeah. And what we, we also try to point out again and again and again is that generally in those places, people are happy. That's right. We're, you know, I'm all for demanding the impossible. We're not even demanding the possible. We're, de de we're demanding what's happening now in other places that, that we are very often richer than, you know, right? Like, you nailed it, brother. You said it better than I. <laughs> Thanks yeah. so much for joining us, John. It's been great. Hope to have you back on uh, to talk about your next book uh, and any time before that as well. I'm really honored to be with you. And I, it's a great conversation and, and just 
keep up the great work and figure out a way to take me to Finland with you. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll work Absolutely. At it. You, you know, I, I'm about to go on sabbatical to Greece. And so we might do an episode or two from there if you want to join us there. I'm, 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 I'm getting my plane <laughs> ticket ready right now. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.